Either buy the hard copy or who go behind the table. Uh, dinner tables have to uh, react pretty instantly and decide whether someone is um, eating or whether a cat in the bin is this is this is fun or tells us all we need to know about the state of Britain today. So I don't think there's room for you know a Guardian and an Independent. Over all the bridges, echoes in rows. Hi, welcome to 2020 Visions, a series that takes the long view, looking at politics, society and culture in the UK over the next decade. This week we're examining the media. I'm Biz and I'm joined by guest presenter, the cultural and cultured journalist James Knight. We have guest contributors including Jon Snow of Channel 4 News, Andy Capper, editor of Vice magazine, BBC Radio 5 Live's Dotton Adebayo, Ewan Ferguson of The Observer, Sunday Times columnist Minette Marin, freelance journalist Rowena Davis, who contributes to The Economist, Guardian and Sky News, media author, academic and head of media at the World Economic Forum, Adrian Monk, and Labour leadership candidate Diane Abbott. Arguably more than any other element of society, media is currently defined by and defines the rampant, exponential, rabid expansion of mankind's exploration of the internet. The old order is rapidly changing, that much is undeniable. But where does this seismic shift leave the traditional forms of media, and how will they compete with the rapidly emerging vanguard of new media? Has complete access to the ability to immediately self-publish any form of content from comment, analysis and reaction, to breaking, and at times making, the news been an egalitarian and democratic reappropriation of the media, or is it an inherently flawed means of allowing subjective opinion to dominate objective fact? Will our current media bastions be able to adapt, react and utilise changing methods of consumption effectively? Or will their reactionary nature cause them to wither on the vine, giving way to a blossoming new form of media and communication? Conversely, will the unchecked rise of citizen journalism give way to a tsunami of uninformed reportage that lacks the integrity of the supposedly authoritative sources we have come to rely upon? So to give us an overview of the media's current state of play, here's author and academic Adrian Monk. I think if you look at the challenge newspapers have had in the last 10 years and the challenge they face in the next 10 years, it's basically paying the bills. Less and less people are buying newspapers, less and less people want to advertise in them. The cost of newsprint, the actual stuff you make newspapers out of is rising. The cost of distributing them is going up. And the places where they used to be distributed, news agents, tobacconists, these places are dying out. So newspapers are facing not a double or triple whammy, but a sort of quintuple whammy of uh, bitter uh, industrial realignment. And, you know, they haven't come out of this looking very good. Almost none of them have responded in a way in which leaves you any confidence that they're going to be around in 10 years' time. They're all hemorrhaging newspaper readers without getting any revenues from online or audiovisual or other kinds of revenue sources. And Professor, a few years ago in the United States, drew a line under the whole newspaper industry and reckoned that the last newspaper would be opened in sort of 2043. And the way things are looking with the UK newspaper industry, it could be a lot quicker than that. The big battle we're going to see over the next 10 years is going to be the battle to keep the BBC alive and where you stand on that debate probably is impacted by whether or not you have a fondness or a liking for a lot of what the BBC does. If, you, if you're a big fan of the BBC, you'll want to see it keeping its licence fee and keeping its funding. If you're not so bothered, uh, you're going to wonder why you're still obliged to shell out every year for a service which, uh, frankly, you don't really enjoy. So that battle is going to be one the BBC faces probably in the next two years, but it's going to be ongoing, I think, as people like Sky and others chip away at its position as a kind of preeminent broadcaster in the UK. 
And it really is it's a strange position Britain finds itself in with the BBC. It's a unique organization. On the other hand, it's a unique organization that no one else has managed to make work anywhere else. And other television markets seem to function, at least with some nod to quality in other parts of the world. The BBC hasn't produced some of the iconic programs of the last 10 years. You think of something like The Wire produced by HBO. You think of something as successful as a drama like House, which comes out of Fox. It really hasn't kind of come up with the immense blockbuster programming that's captured the international or all the British imagination in the last 10 years. So really the question is, can it refine that and can it justify itself to a new generation of license fee payers? I think when you look at the news, people have you know, been used to in the last 25 years the idea that it comes from broadcasters or it comes from magazines or it comes from newspapers and maybe websites too. But I think increasingly, with the collapse in funding for a lot of these traditional media products, you're going to see a lot of campaigning organizations, a lot of charities, other kinds of bodies stepping into the space left by the traditional news media. And I think they're going to have to adopt a lot of the techniques that uh, newspapers and news outlets and journalists used in order to win credibility, which is to say they're going to have to produce data and stories that are well-sourced, that are well-rehearsed, that have got some balance within them. And they're going to have to ally that to a campaigning agenda. And if you think back to what newspapers were and where they came from at the beginning of the 20th century, that's kind of the space they occupied. And they occupied a ground where there were very little civic or municipal institutions across a rapidly urbanizing Britain. And so I think we're going to see news gathered by very different organizations, but probably to standards that all of us recognize and would think of as being the way we want our news presented, i.e. with some robustness, with some counter views inserted into it, and with an idea of, if not complete balance, then a sense that it's been prepared not by somebody who's trying to spin a line, but by somebody who's raising a legitimate point. I think what's interesting about the last five or ten years and the revolution we've seen in information technology is it's really enabled a whole host of different voices to make themselves heard. Everyone in the UK, from sort of Guido Fawkes to blogging policemen to members of the public filming events as they see them in front of them, So I think we've seen this immense kind of openness and opening up of the media to this kind of material. I think we haven't seen as much of it as we might perhaps have expected. I think what we've found generally is that the people who tend to take advantage of this are people who have the time and the energy. And it's almost reminiscent of politics in the the 1940s, 1950s and 60s when the people who could engage in politics were lawyers and teachers and people with salaried professional jobs who had the spare time to actually also be political campaigners. And if you look at the opportunities new media has thrown up, it's been very good news for professors and for people with the time and the energy and the the opportunity to actually take to the airwaves or write or broadcast themselves it's, you know, it's less easy for people in more demanding or more arduous or physically strenuous jobs to do that, I think. And I think, you know, we mustn't be too utopian about the changes that we've seen in the last 10 years, because actually what they've done is they've simply given a voice to a lot of nice middle class people who probably could have found a voice in a hundred different other ways if they'd chosen to. I think the thing that's going to change the media landscape in the next 10 years is mobile and how mobile affects and impacts all of us. I mean, I think mobile devices are going to be increasingly the way we uh, live and run our lives and interact with information. And the information that can survive in that environment is going to be the most successful. The other questions that we're going to face are questions about how much of our identities we want to give up and how much we want to share with the people who start to know probably more about us than we know ourselves, you know, our movements, our purchases, uh, all the sort of digital details of our lives. I think balancing that out is going to be the kind of media quandary of, of the next 10 years. But if anything, uh, you know, if the lessons of the last two or three years have taught us anything, it's that actually people seem less concerned with it than 
you might previously have imagined. And that the idea of sharing information with people you barely know or perhaps don't even have any connection with is one that uh, you know people are increasingly comfortable with or find simply part of the fabric of their everyday life. Send us your camera footage of the 7-7 terrorist attacks. So requested certain UK broadcasters in July 2005, probably due to the popularity of their last big ask for their audience to provide pictures and videos of the previous winter's Asian tsunami. In the era of 24-hour news, the broadcast media seems desperate for content to fill up airtime, squeezing out every drop of information around every major story. But what will the next decade hold for them, now anyone with an internet connection can access video and audio as it happens online? What for our nightly news programmes? Will they lose their influence? We spoke to Channel 4 News's John Snow about the changing nature of broadcasting. I'm John Snow, and, um, well, I anchor Channel 4 News, among other bits and pieces. I don't think the next decade does herald the end of conventional news media, partly because I think that somebody's got to be there to generate content, and expensive content at that. I mean, I, I give you the example of Brown's resignation as Prime Minister, um, in the moment that he resigned, there were three helicopters up. There were, oh, I think, about 46 cameras on the route to Buckingham Palace. Now, you, you may say, well, I don't think we're going to need all that. And in any case, we're going to have people with mobile phones catching them as he goes past, etc. But I think there will always have to be somebody who will generate information beyond the citizen, somebody whose full-time job it is to do it. So much has emerged in the last 10 years, it's incredibly difficult to predict. But, And I'm quite sure that we're going to go in waves and fads. Clearly, you know, Twitter right now is uh, an incredibly, um, well, potentially powerful tool anyway. And I think BitLinking and the rest of it has made it much easier to get people to pick up on stuff that is online. Clearly, it's going to become easier and easier and easier for people to exchange their own information, and that clearly seems to be the driver of the, the web at the moment, that, that people are social networking and really discussing things that are intimate to their lives much more than they are discussing things which might destroy their lives. Do you think that media consumers are becoming more savvy as the years go by, understanding links between, say, big media outlets and government? No, I don't. I think people are retreating further and further into their own domestic lives and their own social interaction. I think government is largely irrelevant to people until it comes banging on the door with another cut uh, or another tax increase. I mean, I think generally speaking, um, I don't think people are much interested in the in the big picture. I think they're um, having a lot more fun exchanging information about what's going on in their own backyard. I think citizen journalism can become incredibly influential, uh, particularly if people are on the lookout for bad behavior, bad practice, misbehavior. Uh, I don't want to see a sort of fascist state or anything like that, but I think my real worry is if people lose sight of the macro of, of government and of national and regional politics in favor of their social lives at the grassroots, then things will be done to them over which they have very little um, control. And I, I think the citizen, if they're really going to be valuable as a journalist, needs to be on the lookout for more than the local. How can institutions like Channel 4 News compete with, let's say, embedded video content online? That's the question Barack Obama asked yesterday. You know, I mean, if 25% of America now thinks that Barack Obama is a Muslim and 18% think that he was born outside the United States, and they think that almost exclusively because uh, a particular faction of the political elite uh, have managed to purvey that message by courtesy of social networking and the rest of it, it's a, it's a bit of a grim lookout, and I think... Uh, our job is to combat that and to try to produce irresistibly interesting, intriguing and enticing information that attempts to get somewhere near the truth. You've embraced blogging. What kind of in interaction does that give you? 
Well, I'm still aware that it doesn't really give me the interaction that I would most like to be part of in the sense that I haven't got time to um, get involved in the threads and in the, in the discussions that occur, you know, across my blog. Um, and I'd really like to join in, but then you have to reveal your email and all the rest of it, and not revealing it is somehow tricky too. I haven't, just haven't got the time. Time is the killer. I mean, all, all of us in, conve- in the conventional media are working longer hours and f- more intense hours than we've ever worked in our lives. What one key difference to the media landscape do you think will occur in 2020 in comparison to now? I presume there'll be some sort of bodily implant which will render unnecessary the carrying of any implement to communicate with another human being. Traditional print newspapers have, for centuries, provided the benchmark for news, reportage, editorial comment and analysis in the United Kingdom. Newspapers are the trusted voices that people in this country have relied upon for informed journalism. However, in a world where physical newspaper sales are plummeting and people are rapidly becoming accustomed to consuming their news online and for free, where does that leave the traditional paid-for print media model? Rupert Murdoch's recent move to place News International's content behind a paywall represents a last roll of the dice for the traditional means of paid-for print consumption. Will people continue to pay for quality journalism online, or will they look elsewhere? We spoke to Minette Marin, a journalist, broadcaster and fiction writer who has written for the Daily and Sunday Telegraph, The Spectator, The Times, The Guardian and The Observer about where she sees the industry going in the next 10 years. I think I have the sense of being in a dying industry in this old sense. It's alarming and exciting all at once. It's alarming for old-fashioned hard copy newspapers. I, I don't suppose they'll last for more than a few years because increasingly people can read and get more comfortable with reading news and comment online. And it becomes more and more difficult for newspapers to survive. They're in terrible trouble. Quite apart from the IT challenge, they are having trouble getting advertising, um, partly because of the economic climate, and um, partly because people are turning to IT instead and cutting down on, their, on, their, you know, on the, what they have to pay for newspapers. So mostly it's free. I'm now working for the Sunday Times, and um, the Times and the Sunday Times have gone behind a paywall, which is a very interesting and slightly alarming experiment. And they, too, have to compete with people who get news and comment free. What do you feel are the negatives and positives of the paywalling experiment? What's your kind of view on paywalling as a concept for print media? I don't see any way around it. I think it's very brave of News International to be, in effect, the first general newspapers to do it. Um, Specialised papers like the FT and the Wall Street Journal have done it already, and it's much easier for them because they have specialised content, which you're not going to be able to get anywhere else. General papers like um, the Times and the Sunday Times and other um, quality papers face all sorts of problems. The whole sort of rationale is falling out of the bottom of newspapers and how journalists get and keep work. It seems to me that... um, there's no way that the old system could carry on. You cannot keep on producing um, good journalism. That's hiring good foreign correspondents, good columnists, and uh, when everyone else is doing the same for nothing, you, there's no money in it. And it seemed to be the case that advertising online just hasn't worked out. That's the bottom line with the paywall, that advertising online, which all the free organizations do, is not working for them. The only... Um, Organisations which can do free online copy are the BBC, which is their website is great, and the Guardian, because they're partly charitably funded. Nobody else can really do it, so everyone's going to be forced into it, and News International is leading the way. But it is alarming, because there again, you wonder how, um, unless people pay in droves, which is the gamble, the great gamble, uh, one wonders how it's going to uh, sustain itself. For a journalist, there's a very different set of problems, particularly now when there's only one big organisation which is, has, is behind a paywall. I, myself, have disappeared from the internet. Everything I used to write would be picked up, like most people's writing, and disseminated around the internet because it was freely available and could be downloaded easily. And lots and lots of people might read what I wrote. Now, the only people who read what I write are those who either buy the hard copy or who go behind the, the, the paywall. 
and I, I just sort of seem to have died on the, on the internet. And it's, as, as I'm a freelancer, it's very bad for me because my um, my work depends on people knowing who I am. And while the Sunday Times is my main employer and my most important employer, I do write for other people. And I do like to have a sense that I'm engaged in public debate and people are coming back at me and talking to me. And the paywall at the moment stands between me and all that. Do you, do you feel then that that's probably, in your view, the, the most negative element is that by paywalling a whole kind of branch of journalists in this country or placing them behind the paywall, it kind of removes them from, as you were saying, the kind of the, the public debate and discourse that can go on between kind of journalists within the print media? Many of us have blogs. Mine isn't up and running at the moment, but has been for years and will be again soon. All of us who have blogs put up our copy on them. And unless we're bought out by um, interested parties, um, that is a, a kind of leakage from underneath the foundations of the paywall, I should have thought. And that, that is very interesting because essentially that is your work and there must be a sense of, you know, it's, it's your work that you own, so you do have a right to kind of put it out there on your own personal blog. Is there, is there kind of contractually some kind of ownership that when you write something for, say, the Sunday Times and it is behind the paywall that you will potentially not? Is that a conflict of interest there? How, how does it work? Not in my current contract, no. Um, they, they have um, provisions about use of electronic material. Um, but it doesn't cover this situation, I don't think. It is certainly my copyright, yes. How do you kind of feel that, you know, looking into a, a crystal ball, that the, uh, the the world of print media and kind of where it's headed, how do you predict it will exist in 2020? I remember at the Daily Telegraph offices in Fleet Street seeing the last people using um, old-fashioned print. And um, I think... In, in my, sort of toward the end of my career, we'll see the complete end of hard copy newspapers. Already, you can read newspapers so interestingly. I have an iPad, and although I'm not quite used to reading newspapers on the iPad yet, I've been reading them online for a long time. It's not as nice as hard copy, but I think one will adapt and start to read differently. I think we'll be in a world without newspapers. The problem, though, I think, is going to be for photographs and beautiful images. The one paper I still take in hard copy is The Guardian because it has the most beautiful double-page spread. And I do not think yet the Internet is particularly well-designed for lovely images. It's, it's okay for small and sort of flashing images, but it's uh, not an aesthetic experience yet. Of course, that may change with technology. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it did. But I think we'll be in a completely different world where there are far fewer journalists, far fewer um, official, um, powerful press style organizations, far, far more blogging, and um, we'll see far more of um, clearinghouses, that's to say sites where you can be directed to blogs that you might like, rather than um, actual newspapers which do that job now. Newspapers over recent years have venerated their comment section, hiring well-connected members of the enlightened intelligentsia, whilst cutting staff costs and laying off news hounds. Readers want a views paper, they say. Maybe because editors think that their bovine audience are too stupid to form their own opinions about world events. Trouble is, commentary is reactive, with most commentators having nothing of any interest to say about this week's news cycle. Comment is free, but it also largely is ill-informed and bombastic. If you want to hear highly paid hacks arguing that those sex workers in Ipswich got what they deserved, or finding it absurd that the bad guys in BBC drama programmes are never Muslims, head to the comment section. We spoke to a man who uses his pen as a force for good, the Observer's Ewan Ferguson. My name's Ewan Ferguson. Um, I've been working for the Observer newspaper, um, the oldest Sunday paper in the world, for the last 16 years. Feels like about 50. Do you think that comment and commentary has been fetishised by newspapers? I think one thing that has happened in, in the past uh, almost 20 years, I think, is that there has been the rise of, of comment and commentary. I know I do it myself in that uh, when there is a news story which captures the imagination um, over the week, uh, increasingly uh, most of the columnists in, in the, uh, the op-ed, the, the, the middle pages inside, will end up saying more about it than the actual news reporter who's been on the ground and, and covering it. I personally link this back to something uh, I remember seeing uh, again between 15 and 20 years ago when reporters, live media reporters, broadcast reporters, stopped asking what do you think, and began to ask, um, how do you feel? 
think there has been a, a drop in analysis of, of uh, you know, just the facts, ma'am, and uh, their analysis of what happened and what the police have said and uh, who's been arrested and where we stand on, on this uh, foreign policy. And often these stories have lesser prominence on um, the page, whether the home page or the foreign page, than the commentary which sits beside it. Instinctively, I think it's, um, it can be a very helpful thing. It can help us put the story into context, historical context and um, social context in a way that a bold, properly legal news report can't. But I think that it coincides with the rise of comment on the Internet, some of which is wonderful and better than anything I or anyone I know could write, and some, some of which is um, incredibly uninformed, abusive, and, and the very definition of counterproductive. Do you think that too much of this comment is reactive, instantly reactive? Do you think that, um, that, that the mainstream media relies on this instant hit of reaction? I think sometimes this instant hit of reaction can be, well, it's, it's difficult to do, difficult to, to judge whether you're going to get it entirely right. I have, have the advantage of working for a Sunday that if something happens on, say, a Tuesday in Cumbria, and I'm half writing about it and half commenting about it by coming to Sunday, I've had three or four nights to think about it and to, to set it in context. Uh, daily papers have to uh, react pretty instantly and decide whether someone is um, good or evil or whether something is a, a fine thing or a bad thing or uh, whether a cat in a bin is just a, a bit of fun or, or tells us all we need to know about the state of Britain today. And I think that with the onset of rolling 24-hour news and obviously uh, the net, uh, there are hordes of people doing the same as well, and often the story does change over time, often over, you know, often over months, often once a, even a trial takes place, the, the facts have changed and the interpretations have to change. I think what we are, uh, in, in, in those circumstances, what everyone's doing is the instant reaction of uh, the so-called saloon bar mentality, but possibly with, with bigger words, when someone wanders into a pub and tell you, tells you something that's happened, and you... You use your own life prejudices, you know, literally, to, to, to have prejudged a situation. So, goodness knows, I've, I've um, so seldom got it right, but I have had the advantages of um, having four or five days to think about it and see how a story develops. In terms of new forms of media, which people keep talking about, I, this, is a, this is a very, very hard question because um, I think we're changing so fast that we're not even quite quite sure of what to do with um, with the current ones. There's um, such a thing uh, called Moore's Law, um, which has everything um, expanding, everything in new technology expanding by one and a half times um, every 18 months, I think it is. And what we need to sort is the stuff that's going to be useful from the stuff that, uh, you know, I often think you know, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. And if you look back to the history of, um, even recent history of mobile phones, I don't know if anyone would have absolutely put their house on text messaging becoming um, one, of the, one of the main aspects of mobile phones. You go back to other uh, forms of technology, that, you know, the telephone was meant to be doomed, and um, television, we've even been told, is, is um, uh, ever since its inception, was doomed. And I think it takes a long perhaps an increasingly short time, but it does take a span of time for people to work out what they're going to really want and what's going to be useful and whether they're just going to spend a year and a half playing on a site or with an app and then realize that actually it's been a complete waste of a year and a half of their life and they could have actually booked a train ticket the other way or um, watched the program the other way. On the other hand, I mean, so much of it is, is incredibly useful. I think it's just this, this tyranny of choice. There are so many options for us now that it, something will come out in the next decade and there will be some consensus which allows us to work out what, it, for us, individually, personally, is the most useful. What role, if any, do you think that the tangible daily newspapers will play in people's lives in 10 years' time? I think in 10 years' time, in the same way as books, I think people are going to walk, want to walk down the street with a newspaper stuck in their pocket or under their arm. And they may be using or abusing uh, net sites and iPhone apps or whatever the next, um, uh, in 10 years' time, iPhone apps will sound like the dinosaurs, uh, whatever it is. And, and sales may have declined and um, there will be much hand-wringing. And I think there will be 
uh, as ever, a, a bit of a battle between the, the old guard saying there's no future in, in this and the early doctors who were who saying this is the only future and your old media is dead. And yet, in the middle, there's going to be something like 95% of us who just um, get by and get by on a, on a happy enough mix of both without trying to force the future upon ourselves, no matter what the circumstances were, no matter if I had the, the world's newest machine in 10 years, if I had it in my hands now, I could still tell you that I would be walking down a street in 10 years' time with a, um, a paperback of semen on in my pocket and a copy of the, of the Observer under my arm. So unless you enjoy listening to autoglass adverts every three songs or a crazed hippie who listens to Resonance FM, chances are that your radio listening centres around good old Auntie Beeb. The BBC's future hangs in the balance over the next ten years, with a number of politicians and media commentators wanting to throw Auntie to the walls of the commercial sector. We spoke to one of BBC Radio 5 Live's leading broadcasters, Dotton Adebayo, about the future of radio, whether we can look to the US for new ideas, and the difficulties of being a BBC journalist in the era of eyewitness news. Also, from the Edinburgh Television Festival, we were joined by Labour leadership candidate Diane Abbott. What happened in the last 10 years is that radio realised, well, our market, our competition is partly television, partly the internet, you know, partly all these other opportunities and it's had to hone in very acutely as to what its purpose is and what it does better than everybody else of course radio is a very immediate medium whereas television has to set up cameras and so on radio news happens yep straight stay on air right now and you'll even get there before the internet and you know it's had to hone in what it can do better than other media and i think that that only helps to um, sharpen its talents you know how do you think that the bbc will continue to play a role in people's lives <sighs> that's a tough one um because the bbc's future is not in its own hands as a public broadcaster it's uh, it's in the hands of politicians essentially rather than the public which i think is a huge mistake arguably um the politicians' decisions are being influenced by certain sections of the print media, primarily the Daily Mail, that seems to be in an ongoing uh, battle, a war of attrition with the BBC. But because its future is, will ultimately be determined by politicians, it's very difficult for it to um, plan for an indefinite future. It has to sort of plan two or three years ahead each time. And I think that that restricts its ability to achieve a, a real sort of long-term perspective. Uh, and people say this all the time, but it's true. You know, I lived in the United States, and you need to go abroad to realize how much of an impact the BBC does play on your life, rather than, you know, how much of an impact uh, or how much of a difference it makes to the media, but how much of an impact it makes to your life. In the United States, radio, for example, plays virtually no role in people's lives anymore. There, there are certain sections of radio that are doing well. We all know about the shock jocks and so on. But, you know, as a nation of 300 and 350 million people, radio plays virtually no part in people's lives. Television plays a much bigger part in people's lives, and I'm not sure if the part it plays is always um, a positive one. The idea of the BBC is that it should play a positive part in people's lives. Um, I think that there are certain sections or certain parts of its broadcast that I can't see how that's supposed to be a positive part in our lives. However, there is still a huge chunk of it which is um, still has the ideals of, um, you know, uh, basis for which it was set up. And uh, all I can say is, without the BBC, my own life, quite apart from my private life, quite apart from being a broadcaster, is the poorer. I think it can, it can lead the way in the battle of the media. It can certainly lead the way it does internationally in, in terms of quality of media. And if media is important to our lives, then I think it should carry on being the, 
the the forerunner and the leader in that respect. After all, we pay for it. Are there any new forms of media that um, the Americans are pioneering at the moment that uh, you think could be translated to British audiences? Americans have always been ahead of us in, or the last century have been ahead of us in terms of um, writing. They're both their newspapers and magazines, you know. The, we still have no equivalent to, let's say, the New Yorker magazine, which um, allows uh, great writers to write a 100,000-word article, which is a total page-turning um, experience. You know, and w- w- without um, having to stick to the agenda of the magazine or otherwise, w- we don't have those equivalents as part of our mainstream media at all. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't know why. I, I don't know. I don't understand why we, as a country, which should be, we were the world leaders, and it is our language after all, <laughs> despite uh, certain uh, Americanisms creeping in. I don't see why we do not, no longer lead the world, in, particularly in my field in terms of fiction, but even in journalistic writing. We need to learn from America in that. Rap music, which I'm very passionate about, has shown that you can have a nation of poets, young poets out there coming up with their own rhymes, some people say, but I, I look at it as real good poetry, and I don't see how, I don't see why we don't appreciate our own forms of that as much as Americans do. You know, rap gets a lot of criticism from America, but I think we'll accept that in America it's pretty much mainstream hip-hop culture now, and it is the medium that people use, whether in advertising or otherwise it's difficult for even a BBC journalist to be taken seriously when he's parachuted into a situation anywhere other than his base. I don't necessarily mean overseas, but yeah, primarily overseas, because invariably the BBC journalists will look very different from the local people and sound very different. But even within the UK, you know, can we... Can we, who would you rather be listening to as to what's going on in Bradford, let's say? Somebody that was parachuted in from TV Centre in London, or even somebody parachuted in from BBC Leeds in Yorkshire? Or would you rather listen to somebody who lives in that situation and can give you another perspective? I don't necessarily think that that is a superior perspective, but it is a... Um, you know, what they used to call in the United States eyewitness news, you know. Um, It adds a dimension that no amount of professional journalism can add. I mean, in the past, it was the the vox pops. Even the professional journalists would go to the local area and say, right, what did you see? Tell us what happened. Tell us the background to this. Why why has this situation been occurring all this time? And now, suddenly, you've got the uh, citizen journalists coming and saying, well, look, I'm not going to do it from the perspective of that professional journalist. I'll tell you from my perspective. I don't need to have him asking me questions and me just being um, a, a little vox pop within the item. I will tell you the story. It's an important story from my perspective. And that, you know, we saw it with a Baghdad blogger. I mean, he, he, he was the most celebrated citizen journalist, if you like. It's not necessarily the only perspective to the war in Iraq, but it was a perspective that wasn't being shown anywhere else. So eventually, even BBC had to say, OK, let's second this guy onto our own um, journalistic pool and have him, you know, giving us an, another perspective to that uh, situation, you know. And it's funny, in a war situation... As we've seen with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly at the beginning, they are so one-dimensional because the uh, professional, if you like, is being hampered because he has, he's totally um, indebted, if not uh, embedded, with the um, uh, uh, coalition troops or invading troops, I was going to say, uh, more precisely. So he's only going to give you that perspective. He can only give you that perspective. At the beginning of the Iraq war, we didn't really know what was going on in Iraq. We couldn't see it from an Iraq perspective. That might have been okay 60 years ago, the Second World War, but it's no longer um, acceptable for the viewer. They want to see both sides of it, you know. And I think the citizen journalist, with 
the access to the right um, uh, tools will be able to give us that perspective in the future. It will be more and more difficult for um, countries to invade other countries and, and, and tell the story from their perspective because the citizen journalists will be there saying, whoa, hang on a second, that's not the way we see it over here. Well, I'm in Edinburgh at the International Television Festival. There's a big debate going on in the coffee bars and amongst the people attending around the role of the BBC. And there's going to be a big speech tonight by Mark Thompson, the general of the BBC. My view is the BBC is an anchor to broadcast television, and it's very important to defend it because there are too many powerful uh, commercial interests that want to cannibalise the BBC and in the process drives down standards in television. It's very interesting. When there's a really big event, people want a newspaper. I was in New York the day after Obama got elected. You couldn't get a newspaper in New York for love nor money. When there's a big news story over here, people turn to the BBC. And there are some things that only the big news media can do. Um, the expensive scandal was very embarrassing for members of Parliament. But nonetheless, it took a big newspaper out of Telegraph to throw resources at it, to use traditional journalistic skills to break the story. You could never have done the expensive story on the internet, cutting and pasting. News is information, but news is also, as somebody said, things that other people don't want you to know, things the state don't want you to know. And finding out things the state doesn't want you to know takes time, and it takes skill and it takes resources. And I believe going forward that newspapers and the electronic media and the internet are complementary. They're not fighting each other. It's not a zero-sum game. I thought it was very interesting with the Telegraph expenses story that they posted it online 11 o'clock every night. Their um, viewership online shot up. But also the readership of their paper shot up. The fact that people were seeing the story online didn't make them less willing to buy the paper. I think that there are stories, mostly the Lisa Tomlinson, who was assaulted by the police in the G20 demonstration, and the pictures taken by people who are bystanders help to push the story along. There are stories which you can help by bystanders taking pictures or whatever. But in the end, real journalism takes work, takes effort, takes knowledge. Um, and the average bystander isn't going to be able to give it that time and that effort. I think people have always understood that um, journalists bow um, to vested interests. I think it was actually um, the Tory Prime Minister Baldwin who called um, the, the newspaper uh, prerogative of... Uh, from not taking responsibility, um, talking to the harlots throughout the ages. People have always been fairly savvy about what newspapers are about, making money, enhancing the prestige of their proprietors, and where necessary, bowing to vested interests. While traditional forms of media are struggling to come to terms with how to deal with the complex digital world opening up before them, the new media institutions born of the digital age have harnessed its potential. By utilising free distribution in print, Vice magazine hit the ground running when it moved both online with Viceland.com and into making film and TV content with VBS.TV. While traditional forms of media have spent the last decade scared about people not paying for their content, Vice's distribution model was equipped to deal with the changing world of digital media. We spoke to Andy Kappa, who co-founded Vice in the UK and heads up Vice and VBS.TV across Europe, about how it is redefining the possibilities of new media. My name is Andy Kappa and I am from Vice. You've now been, I guess, working at Vice even before it was kind of set up in the UK properly for almost, I guess, like approaching 10 years now. How has Vice as a media organ changed? It's got a lot bigger, lots more people. We're in 30 different countries now. Um, I barely know the names of anyone who works for us anymore. I hate coming to work. I don't want to kill myself. Joking aside, it's, um, it's just a lot bigger. We've got the VBS Films Division. 30 different countries, lots of different editors everywhere, bringing amazing content, lots of meeting amazing new people constantly, and having a total laugh every day. I don't think we've ever done anything of a press release, or ever, we never, never usually use press offices unless we're trying to get someone who's kind of famous, 
when we do an interview with someone famous, which we hardly ever do, we came out at a time when the media was very focused, more than ever before in the history of media, on celebrities and tawdry stories about breast implants and tampons and um, just rubbish celebrities. And the culture of other magazines and newspapers that worked out was that the PR people would control what was going in the magazine, and we've never really done that. So you have to work harder to get the stories by just finding going on the internet, going to places, going to bars, old school, well, without the internet, so just sort of old school journalism, going out there and meeting interesting people without a press officer or a marketing guy telling you how to do it. But it's a fun a process rather than some guy who earns more money than you to hawk a crap record or a crap book at you and then doing what he wants. That's no fun at all. CBS stands for Vice Broadcasting Systems and it was set up on the advice and direction of Spike Jones, who made Jackass and directed some films, being John Malkovich's adaptation, what the wild things are. He said, why don't you film your articles? So we said, okay, we'll give it a go. So we gave it a go. Started in 2007. As the years have gone by, we've become more adept at filming our stuff. Um, in the UK, we've got, I've got, I do a show called Rural Britannia where I make films with people like Leo Lee. Um, um, who else? Other people and they're about Britain and they're just basically a return, kind of hopefully a return to like the way documentaries used to be in the 70s and 80s when there was just when it wasn't based around a celebrity going to have his buttocks removed in the jungle <laughs> it was uh, just more about real stuff that happens and hopefully a reflection of things that go on around us that are not, not, not only entertaining but also makes you think about issues and stuff the New York guys worked out some deal with CNN so that the last three films I've done have all got on the front page of CNN America for like a day, which is really weird. In the box where they usually have the stuff about Obama or a hurricane in New Orleans, they have like a little film that we've made. We had Liberia up there. When me and Shane went to Liberia, met General But Naked. We had the Swansea love story up there where me and Leo Lee went to Swansea, met a family of drug addicts. Um, we had, the last one we had up there was Afghanistan in the UK, which was when me and Jason Mahika lived with a two-para training to go to Afghanistan for a week. And that's since gone on to be linked to lots of other websites, a lot of which are like far right wing uh, gun nuts who who love the documentary but are complaining about the foul language in it. At the same time, they've got links to buying armed ammunition and uh, t-shirts of anti-Muslims. But I don't like the bad language. Where do you, in ten years' time, where do you see the kind of media landscape? Do you think that the kind of the traditional kind of uh, bastions of media journalism will kind of be withering on the vine? I think generally more it'll be just more members of the public doing journalism and not getting paid for it because the people in media control media companies want to pay the people who bring the content in as least as possible. That's not going to change. It's going to get worse. Maybe. I think I spoke to a local reporter. I used to work on the Liverpool Echo series, and I saw him in Liverpool the other day, and he said. They don't pay photographers anything anymore. They just rely on people with digital cameras at home to send in the photographs. So there's no, there's not even any photographers out there working on local papers anymore. They just get the people at home to send it in. And in a way, I mean, maybe they've been overpaying these people for years. That's one way of looking at it. People got lazy. It's like the record industry. The record industry got lazy. The public said, why should I pay for this crap? You know, how many times can you repackage the Rolling Stones album and make your money off the back of that and pay these terrible bands these advances and pay these idiots 80 grand a year to do nothing apart from do cocaine in a bar with a band <laughs> of which I know like about 250 people in London alone it's just caught it's just caught up with everybody I think hopefully the standard won't go down but it's that's a stupid thing to say because it is going down already I think it should be preserved I think there's still people who are good journalists and photographers that should be rewarded for their work, but the way it's going ha- to it's going to change is loads more free content, loads more user-generated content, loads more the tsunami of information thing that Ian Heslop talked about when I met There's just so much out there, you, you, it's going to be hard to tell what's what's really good or bad or what, what's to believe in. But if that's necessarily a bad thing, I don't know really. We'll just keep doing what we've always done, hopefully. It's hilarious how the Times think... People are going to pay for to watch, read the Times online, isn't it? Don't you think? <laughs> well, the first person who buys it is going to bootleg and put it on the internet in the next ten minutes, aren't they? Certainly, a lot of publications sprung up after everybody saw us being successful. Turned to these free publications, most of them closed down within six months 
because of stuff they just thought you could give away something free and it it could be crap but it would be you know people would still get it people don't want crap you know people aren't that stupid if you give something away free that's quality you'll succeed but if you give something away that's free that's a piece of shit no one's gonna no one's gonna pick it up is general butt naked still in touch with you yeah we're on facebook together he's got a new uh, website about helping out child soldiers and i possible i'm going to be helping put his autobiography out it's about how he transformed from a mass murdering cannibal drug dealing rapist into a vicar <laughs> that's probably not going to be in the times anytime soon i don't know it's a pretty good story is there a title for that yet yeah it's called trading priesthood for royalty it's about um he used to be a satanic priest to worship the devil in the bush and he eat babies every day and now he's like goes around singing gospel music in churches in the slums perfect who doesn't want to put that out exactly Jordan's guy should put it out so what for the next generation of journalists what insights can they offer the old guard to end the show we thought you might like to hear from freelance journalist and all round good egg Rowena Davis my name's Rowena Davis. I'm a freelance journalist, been working for the National Press for three years. I mostly write for The Guardian, also write for The New Statesman and the FT. So I think, like a lot of journalists will say at the moment, I know it sounds cliche, but Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, WikiLeaks, all these forms are going to become increasingly important over the next 10 years. A fact I found really interesting was looking after the Virginia Tech massacre of 2007, where the biggest source of, of, source of news that people went to straight after those attacks was actually the Facebook profile of the perpetrator and also some of the other students in the college as well. And... I think more recent example about Afghanistan and WikiLeaks that came out recently in conjunction with The Guardian, that was a massive story and we're going to see an increasingly large number that are coming out in that way. Twitter is the best way of obtaining news. You just do get it faster when you're on there, even if you've got to double check it afterwards. Do you think that um, journalists over-relied on these new forms of, of social media rather than doing what journalists of yore might have done and actually gone to the place, meet people, try and find out what their thoughts, feelings were? I think that's a really good question. I think the biggest problem that journalists face now is time. So, you know, how can I be simultaneously writing an in-depth article, checking all my sources and updating my Twitter feed and going on Facebook and doing all of this online stuff and making a short video about it on the side? I think a lot of journalists would like to leave the office more, but there isn't the resources to do it when you're trying to put things out at speed. I think one of the advantages that I have as a freelance is that because I'm not based in the office, I can then go out and report and meet people and be mobile through through my phone, basically. So I was heavily involved in reporting on the G20 demonstrations and blogging it live through my phone on Twitter and updating photographs. And that was a really good way of combining being out of the office and talking to people with also new technology and new media. So it doesn't always have to keep you in the office but there are times when you think that Guardian journalist, all they've been doing for the last 12 hours is kind of following their Twitter feed and trying to kind of copy things that have already been said. How many pieces do you work on at uh, any given time? As a freelance, I make a rule of never working on less than 30 stories at once. They are always at different stages of development. So some of them I'm just like the very beginning stages of researches. Some are just FOI requests and some are being sort of dusted off and spell-checked. And I write on any kind of political social affair that, um, that I can get my hands on really so I'm the daughter of a sociologist so I was brought up listening and talking about race gender class youth and I would say though back to your earlier point that the best articles that I've done are ones when you go out you leave your bubble and you go and spend some time with the people learning about a particular subculture whatever that might be so one of the favorite pieces I did a few months ago was about status dogs in in um, North and South London and looking at like the culture that's developing there around young men who have them as as a status symbol and also as an alternative to weapons. Yeah, what an amazing experience that middle class girl goes out on the streets and gets to hang out with these guys for like a couple of months, you know, learning about their way of life and what they're doing. At the end of the day, you know, it doesn't pay very much to be able to do that kind of in-depth research, but the quality of the product you produce is so much better. How do you afford to, to uh, spend two months on an individual project? What, where does your money come from? Well, as a freelance, I have to completely cross-subsidise. So I will write one or two pieces a week that I don't think that I'm you know, that interested in, that don't take very much effort, that aren't you know, the most superior quality or on the most interesting subjects. And I use that to subsidise any worthwhile headline that I've ever got. 
and a combination of using those sort of smaller smaller print pieces that I care less about and also just not sleeping and probably not eating enough that's probably that's probably what gets you good journalism <laughs> citizen journalism is a really powerful challenge to the mainstream press right so why would anyone want to hear what I've got to say about reporting an issue when ultimately it's second hand when you can go and check the Facebook profile of the murderer who already committed the act or you can hear it straight from someone who was actually at the scene but I think it does have its limits. It will never replace mainstream institutionalised journalism, mostly for two reasons. The first one is credibility and branding. So someone at the end of the day has to check that that Facebook profile actually corresponds to something in reality. And in a world where you've got so much information coming at you, you just want to know what to trust. And those brands like The Guardian and the BBC, you know, they mean almost more now in a world where there's so much information out there because they're like your guides, they're your credibility mechanisms. Those news outlets can provide a source of funding for longer term investigative journalism. You know, even the MPs expenses scandal was paid for in the end in in the way that um i suppose the commentariat tapped up the blogosphere to try and increase its content do you think that uh, mainstream news outlets could tap up citizen journalists to supplement their work i think that is a good and important thing to do one thing that i was talking to the guardian about is you know could there be some kind of fund where you said okay if you can apply apply for that and get a grant to do a piece of investigative journalism no matter who you were or where you're from then the guardian would get the story and you'd get some funding for doing some research that actually interested you i think that's an interesting and good and appropriate model and i think increasingly with citizen journalism out there the quality of the mainstream press and the stuff they're printing is going to have to go up because otherwise they'll never be able to compete with all these people out there it has to be more accurate it has to be more in depth it has to be more interesting more insightful probably more buried and if journalists and journalistic institutions do cut down on on that good reporting and don't try and innovate or move with the times and up their standards they will just find that they're going to get swallowed do you think that um, that your generation will ultimately save or kill traditional forms of media? I don't think we'll do either. I think we will challenge and reinvent and remake them. I personally love my old-fashioned newspapers and I wouldn't want to get rid of them. I don't want one of these new iBooks. I don't, I don't like the idea of the iPads. But I'm a dinosaur because I'm 25 years old. You know, you look at the people who are coming up now who never got bought a paper. I mean, the, if you look at people of statistics who are sort of 16 and younger, the vast amount of their information is coming through new media. And I don't think that they all have as many um, as many reasons for, for buying the original papers as we did. Um, I think what was quite interesting as well is Alan Rusbridger said that the last set of printing presses that he bought, which lasts for 20 years, he said he'd never need to buy another set again. And he would just replace those a couple of years ago. I want to ask you for a little prediction, which is what one big difference to the media landscape do you foresee in 2020? Sounds awful, but I think what we're going to have is this situation where a lot of the big mainstream outlets, the big names that we know, get swallowed. So I don't think there's room for you know a Guardian and an Independent. Some of them are going to go. And in its place, you'll get more citizen journalists doing their reporting sort of around the corners. But in terms of the big outlets, we're going to get more of a monopoly situation, which is why I think it's so important that we safeguard, for example, the BBC as an alternative to Sky, because I think there's a tendency to, th to believe that because anyone can be a journalist, then the media is going to get a more and become a more diverse place. But actually, in terms of the big players, I think at the top, you're just going to get a few. And that could be incredibly dangerous for this country. One thing I'd really like to stress is that if newspapers in a desperate attempt to cost cut because advertising revenue is declining and print circulation is going down, if they end up sacrificing good quality press, well-researched journalism and just put out trash, just put out fast-paced journalism, then they're going to sacrifice the one thing that makes them different or special or good to anything else that anyone can produce these days and they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. I really think that the only way forward is to invest in better quality. That's all for this week. Next week we look at culture. This is 2020 Visions. Bye for now. Watching you blow